Hello. Hello. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm good. How are you, David? Terrific. Thank you. Welcome to the spiritual involution. It's been a while. I think last month. We used to do it weekly, but now we'll strive for monthly. <laughs> it is so good to hear your voice. What's good new to in hear your, your world? Voice. Oh, just enjoying summer. It's been hot. Been on the road. We went to Utah and Colorado. Uh, got to see my mom, which was a highlight. And then the next highlight, I'd say, was the Arches National Park in Utah. Mm. Um, I really like rock sculptures. They're just amazing. You know, the formations, uh, the big arches and uh, the, the red rock. It just was really, really beautiful. So, it's mesmerizing, even though, isn't it? It is. Even though it was really hot, uh, we did a, like an evening kind of hike. It's just, I don't know, it's one of those moments where you just feel close to the source when you're kind of alone in those in those places so I enjoyed it a lot and we're going to be heading out to the Grand Tetons here soon which will be also amazing I have love you that been there place, before so. oh, you have. I have yeah uh, so yeah so that's did, about it what's new with you did you guys buy an RV uh we bought a trailer which kind of is that it's towed behind our truck. So you bought works. a trailer. Yeah. Good it's not for a you. fancy RV. It's not a fancy RV like you and Mal have with a, a fireplace and everything inside of it. Yeah. But ours doesn't, um, ours is too big for us to pull and tow. I, I hire somebody to move that when it needs to be moved. <laughs> right. Yeah. Some of them are so big. It's like, wow, how do people even maneuver that? I get nervous just with our little trailer. So, my my uh, brother pulls his. My brother and his wife they both pull theirs. It's impressive. I watch my sister in law, and I think, "Who are you? Where did you learn that?" She's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Have I you mean, driven? I guess you get used to it. I'm too driven? nervous to drive it because John loves this thing. Like he <laughs> loves it, and I'm just I'm worried I'm gonna dent it or mess. I want him to be the first one to put like a dent or mess it up. Okay, got it. And then, and then after that first little dent, I'll be like, "All right, I'll give it a go." <laughs> uh, but yeah. But anyway, I wanted to discuss a book with you. And Tell I me. Don't know if you, you had a chance to look at the podcast I sent about the book, but it's no, called but I know. Civil- I... Go on. You you know about it? Okay. Well, you sent me the you sent me the link, and I did a little bit of uh, surface level scratching. Yeah, so I tell figured. Me. Some of his podcasts kind of are almost like a mini book report. It's called Civilized to Death, Christopher Ryan. Mm-hmm. And I had found this book because I was in the middle of reading a book by Wim Hof, who's another character that I've been intrigued by lately. Um, but he referenced this book in his book. And so I don't know about you, but when you're reading and you're liking a book, if they reference a book, you figure if they like that book, then you might like that book. Do you yep. ever do that? I do. Yeah. Um, in fact, just yesterday, I know this is already one of my, one of our famous sidebars. Just yesterday, I was talking to a man who said, whenever, whenever he starts reading a book, he starts having this experience of relatedness to the author. Like he knows the author, he feels the author. So that's in alignment with what you just said about uh, if an author references a book, you're going to go there. 
Oh, yeah. Well, especially Wim Hof, because I don't know if you're familiar with him, but his work is a lot with breath work and using cold. And he's found a lot of uh, interesting findings with that. But what's interesting about him is he actually has people from, I think, MIT or Stanford or one of the big ones, right? doing scientific studies on how his body is able to react the way it is through his training, it's opening mm-hmm. up a really amazing doors to things that people assumed before your body could never control. So that book in particular, in particularly really connects you with the author because it's really about him. Right. And he's got such a way of speaking that I think I've talked to you about this before. He's like, he's followed by many. Some could, would consider him a guru, but he will not take that name up. He's really self-deprecating and kind of acknowledges that everything he is doing, all of us can do. And I'm really drawn to that kind of guru. <laughs> like the cat's kind of like, dude, I'm not a guru. I want, yeah. okay, I'll listen, I'll listen to you. It's the minute you kind of think you're hotter than everyone else. I'm kind of like, ah, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I find that is a, a thing in the, in the spiritual community, I, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm being judgmental, but whatever works for you. I just find it very off-putting when, when I feel like there's too much, what's the word I'm looking for? When, when someone is that, I think they would say cocksure. Yeah. There's a, yeah, brava- there is a bravado sometimes. And I, I know you, Katie, I, I, a little bit. And I, I heard what you just said. I have that experience too. We share that in common. And, and when I encounter someone who is, who is um, got a bravado or like their, their chest, metaphorically, their chest is pushed out because they know so much about a particular thing. I have this cause I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic. Well, that's not true. I'm pretty cynical. <laughs> I have this cynical experience that they are overcompensating for something. I have this experience that they're hiding something underneath that bravado. Mm. But I'm not sure that's where you wanted to, me to go with this. No, that was just my own tangent. I just, that's my journey to this book. But I started reading this book, not really knowing what it was other than the title kind of does explain it, Civilized to Death. Um, but I'm trying What's, to see what the best way to explain well, the, the premise is. So let's pretend you wrote the book and I'm going to interview you, the author. Now, everybody knows you didn't, but I'm going to ask questions because I want to know, firstly, if you could, in a paragraph or so, tell me what is Civilized to Death about? That's what I'm going to struggle with, I think. But all okay. right, I'm Christopher, I'm Christopher Ryan, the author, uh-huh. and the book is about this idea of the narrative a perpetual progress being our belief system that has gotten us to where we are now and reflecting on whether or not this state of belief that we are always needing to progress is actually getting us to a place of more joy and more complete feelingness. Um, and he has a very persuasive argument that we might be missing something (laughs) and he asks the question what is our character as a human species not as a person but like for example a dog 
can act very differently depending on his environment, right? But at the very root of the dog species, you can connect it to the wolf. And there's very similar qualities to a dog and a wolf being pack animals, being social animals. There's a hierarchy and whatnot, right? And every species kind of has a innate beingness that's most true to potentially their greatest expression. And are we living in an environment that is actually conducive to that beingness? So you're saying you and I, we have a premise, and the premise is you and I and all of our sisters and brothers in humanity have a natural state or a natural yes. na- a nature. And, and there, is a, there is a push to continue to improve or think we're improving this natural state. And right. the question that arises for us right away is, is that true? Is it possible that trying to improve what's already perfect might be detrimental? Yeah, and, and not even our trying to improve, but is this idea of progress actually creating almost what I envisioned a environment that's actually very unnatural to that original state ah, so is this, actually... is where, this is where i'm going to step on your words only for clarity as i go along okay you say progress so i said improve because I, I i interpreted progress to be improvement but so what do you mean progress um so we're, we're never content with what's occurring right it's always this sensibility of well let's get quicker let's get more innovative let's get uh, bigger, better, quick. It's always that push forward. Right. And, um, especially lately with technology, it just appears that is become even quicker and quicker and quicker. And there's this belief system hidden within that, that there we're saving ourselves from this sort of primitive nature that we have within us, like civilized beings that we once were and life's become so much so much easier, so much higher status of, of life than it used to be. And Christopher Ryan, the author, makes the argument that if you go behind the agricultural revolution, or he believes that was the first step of progress that really altered that innate beingness of humanity, you can see a society that didn't actually act the way we believe, quote, savages acted. There was a lot to that beingness um, of which we are actually mostly made of. Historically speaking, the human species has been around for between 200 and 100,000 years. And the agricultural revolution was just 10,000 years ago. And once we started to stay put and create a sort of scarcity feeling of of food and, and things and building up materialistic things, we then built like a hierarchy of power. And all of a sudden, it's just started to grow. And he gives an analogy of like a boy holding a balloon, right? Mm-hmm. And you're holding the balloon and you slowly get off the air and you're kind of looking down like, oh, crap, I'm lifting up off the air. And, and really looking back, you should have let go then. But you just kept holding on and the balloon kept rising and rising. And before long, you don't know how you got that high, but there's no way you can let go now. It's like you've already gotten that high and you're kind of stuck. That's kind of how he sees the progress. It's not like 
the first farmers realized this was going to be the beginning of a totally different side path to where human beings in the 21st century are going to be with iPhones, Alexa apps, uh, you know, rockets to the moon, jobs where people have 401ks and, and can't get out of them, um, depression rates and all these things, right? So some of this is obviously good. I mean, life in some ways is easier, but is it easier and is it better? Is there something to learn from those foraging states that we could bring back in? Could we create our environment to be one a little bit more in balance with potentially like what our DNA is maybe made of? So any good sermon, any good speech, any good self-help seminar, any good book that I have read all have at least this one thing in common, and that is a call to action. So at the end of it, at the end of the sermon, at the end of the speech, at the end of the self-help seminar, at the end of the book, you have this call to action. What's the call to action in Civilized to Death? I'm not sure if he has a direct call to action. I think the call to action that I took is I believe we're kind of in a state right now of questioning our structure. You know, you hear a lot about tearing things down, getting rid of the structure that is, recreating a new normal, whatever that looks like. <clears throat> and we blame it on a lot of stuff. We blame it on different identity politics and groups and, and whatever. But I'm wondering if the call to action should be to really get a grip and under or maybe a better understanding of what that foundational nature is and start from there. Because if we've lost contact with that foraging ancestor, that, that ancestor that has been there for the most of our life, if we're speaking of our species, maybe we've lost track of what we need to build. And that to me was a kind of the eye-opening experience. And he draws an analogy too between primates that have been in cages and they act in a way that's not in alignment with what they act like in their natural habitat. They're more stressed out. They show a lot more violence. They show a lot more depression. And so what if we, in some odd sense, have created a zoo for ourselves where we bring out kind of the worst part of our nature, the aggression, the otherness, the depression rates. I mean, for all that we have, we shouldn't have so many people on antidepressants, right? If the world is so much easier and so much better, why are people unable to find that joy that seems to have been maybe more in those foraging communities, even though technically they have what we say would be less? So how are you in 21st century life? How are you exploring the question for yourself and your family? Well, for me, it's getting out in nature. I think, I think that ultimately when you look at these foraging societies, and even before I read this book, I was looking more into Aboriginal art and their foundation, which it's one of the lo longest lasting foraging societies ever. And in, their connection in where in Australia and New Zealand? You know, in the in the world, it's the longest. It goes back the farthest. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're in Australia. But the reverence to nature is the foundation that seems to be in a lot of them, where 
instead of like a hierarchy of needing more or, or giving and taking in that way, the, the arm of, of our bodies actually extends into the earth where that foundation is that tree is my ancestor, that river is my birthright, all of these things to a point where they would die for a tree, right? If, if we could get to a place where that foundation is ingrained a little bit more, where we, where we don't just say, oh, I like going to nature for the sunset. It's, I, I love nature because it's me. Then we would be, that foundation would be an altering state of existence because we couldn't make choices that go against the design because we look at the design like it us. It's no longer a separate thing to be commodity, you know, made into a commodity or to be used for our own gain as a soul that's somehow separate. And I get the feeling that in these foraging societies, there was a lot more connectiveness to each other and to the earth. Hmm. You know, while I'm hearing your, while I'm hearing you speak, which always puts a smile on my soul, I find that uh, there's something in me that's answering the question I had. And the question I, I had posed was, what is it that you are doing for yourself and your family? And the answer that I was getting for myself is, make sure I'm using go toward as opposed to move away from energy. So move to energy as opposed to move from energy. So did, did that make sense to you, what I was just saying so far? Mm-hmm. Um. Um, I'm back in school. Um, in fact, tonight I fly to Austin, Texas to begin the process of an additional certification for my life because I, it's my next step. Ooh, and exciting. I'm super excited about it. And part of my, part of my pre, part of my pre-learning, and for those of you, those of you participating by listening right now, uh, Katie and I both we both are um, committed to being lifetime students, to always be, uh, to be open and curious and learning and observing. Anyway, part of my pre-work before my flight this afternoon has been visiting the distinction between move to versus move from. And in today's world, there's a lot of move from, move away from, Antidepressants move away from political polarities, move away from uh, perceptions of of, uh, uh, oppressive patriarchy, move from um, racial oppression. And its counter would be move to, move toward. Katie, this might be an aside. One of my observations in this uh, interesting period of human time has been watching how there seems to be a, an acceptance in American society to pull down a particular group or race of people rather than lift up a different one. There seems to be, there seems to be a movement that we don't get together as a group to lift up a particularly oppressed segment of our society. What's happening is there's a group of people trying to hammer down a different one. And I find that troublesome. 
Anyway, there's there's my there's my mini sermon. Are you still are you still with me? <laughs> I, I am there. <clears throat> so I feel like we are trying to hammer down things and move things because intuitively we all feel there is something off. There's something in misaligned. And what I think has been misaligned and missing is a myth or a belief that connects us all, right? And we've talked about this before, I think, is like there was a time when religion was more of a stronghold in our society. And, and granted, I, I don't buy that, but it did connect us more, right? There was a time when the American flag connected us all a lot more, um, at least somewhat. And now it's very fragmented and our religious ties have, have broken apart. Our ties to each other have broken apart. Our ties as a nation have broken apart. And to me, what's calling me in this book is that the foundation could be nature. Even if we had a foundation built on this connection to nature, we could still be very, very individualistic. You could still maintain your connection to your faith, whether it be Catholic, Jewish, Mormon, I don't know, whatever, you could still hold your connection to even your tribe as a culture. If you feel connected to being a black person in America and you like your blackness and you want to really be part of blackness, then so be it. Be part of it. If you want to be, you know, part of whatever group, but perhaps if there was a bigger group that we all connected to a little bit deeper that would all. like it's the river it's the current under it all we could connect in a way of better understanding where the sense of unity isn't that we all believe in the thing it's i mean the diversity is what makes the the thing work and we have we have gotten away in our structure the very structure we're living in perhaps produces these differences that we then cling to as the problem but it's really the structure itself so I want to read one little bit from this book and you tell me what you think. Okay. It says civilization may be the greatest bait switch that ever was. It convinces us to destroy what is free. So an overpriced inferior copy can be sold to us later, often financed with the money we've earned, hastening the destruction of the free version, contaminate streams, rivers, lakes, and aquifers with industrial waste, pesticide runoff, and fracking chemicals, and then sell us pure spring water, often just tap water in plastic bottles that break down into microplastics that their way to the oceans, whales' stomachs, and our own bloodstreams. Work hard now so you can afford to relax later. We ignore friends and family while we struggle to get rich so, some, so someone will eventually love us. The voices of civilization fill us with manufactured yearnings and then sell us prepackaged dollops of transitory satisfaction that evaporate on the tongue. And I just thought, you know, we work so hard, we have this structure, and it's not fulfilling. It's not fulfilling a majority of people. And we're, we're blaming each other. We're fighting each other. And I think it's something deeper. Our, the hole that we feel in our hearts and souls, that feeling of something is missing, we're fighting the wrong battle. I feel like it's because we're so far high up in the air holding that balloon that we can't even see the ground that we started from anymore because we've lost it. We don't know how to grow our food. We don't know how to sustain ourselves on this planet. 
we have created a structure that is so far from, you know, the wolf, that innate creature for the dogs, that we are kind of lost beings. That's how I feel. And I, and the more I get into nature and the more that I release myself from my own identity as being a woman, as being a mother, as being anything other than a soul connected to this world, the more I, I reach that place, the more I feel it. I'm like, oh my gosh, like out in the arches. I'm like, this is it. We have, this is it. I don't need anything. This is the feeling. This is the connection this is where we should try to find our place again because it's already there. It's been there. It's just been obscured and we're acting in ways I think that are actually detrimental to not only the planet, but our own sense of joy. Hmm. Do you have uh, advice for people? Well, I don't know if this is going to resonate with other people. I just resonated with me. Because it's, it's an intuitive feeling I've felt before. I think we've even talked about things. I've always struggled with saying things are right or wrong. You know, it's what is. And I'm always like, I feel like there's something off balance. And I kept using that word balance. And I knew it was tied to nature. And I knew that there was something calling me with nature and her design. And after reading this book and thinking about the primates in their cages. And there was also a rat study that was interesting where they put rats in a very cold, isolated, unnatural environment. And they gave them the option of either food or cocaine. And they chose cocaine every time to the point of death. Then they changed their environment to one that is more akin to their natural state, their natural environment. And they didn't choose the cocaine to death. They would choose the food. So, I mean, I'm not saying we're like rats or even primates, but it makes sense that if we've created a world that is so different from our natural environment, which we spent 150,000 years in, could we be experiencing the what, what the rat is experiencing? Like, God, I, I'll just drink more. I'll just take drugs. I can't handle this reality. This is just, and you can't even articulate why it feels wrong. You're like, I have an iPhone. I have a roof over my head. I have clean water. Why am I not happy? Why am I not fulfilled? Could it be that we're just living in a unnatural environment due to our own making? I'm curious about something, friend to friend. Did Has anything shifted in you uh, since moving into the houses that are in the trees? For those people who don't know, um, my experience, my definition of where Katie lives would be she lives in a forest. Has has that altered anything in you or is what you're talking about always been kind of your interest? No, you know, when I lived in the suburban sprawl, I always felt like I wasn't home, like there was something missing, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I never felt like it was my place. I do feel like this is my place. Like I've been running in this one spot in the forest every day. And I was running the other day and I was going over the same rocks and the same things, passing the same creek. I had this really rich sense of being home. Like, you know, the way you can visualize every hallway in your room, in your house, Mm -hmm. you know, you could just, it's like, you know, every turn, you just know that it's so comfortable there because you know it so well. And that was how this run was starting to feel in the forest. And I thought, this is amazing. This, 
I've never felt at home like that in a natural, such a natural setting. And again, I feel like it's some sort of ancestral call. It's like, Katie, you're on the right path. Like you're doing the right thing. Keep going this direction. I'm feeling that feeling like this is it. This is, you're, you're not there yet, but you're getting there. You're, Hmm. you're starting to be, you're start. I feel like I'm starting to regain the original story. Lovely. What questions exist for you right now? Well, what questions exist for you? I keep talking. I basically gave you, does this resonate to you or am I the only one who feels like there could be something beautiful in this idea? So while you're reading, while you're reading Civilized to Death, I have been reading The 100 Year Life. And The 100 Year Life is, let's see if I can summarize Basically, your grandparents, my parents, those generations, they had a three-stage life. It was a period of learning, a period of earning, and a period of resting. So it was like going through your school and then making all the money and getting ready for retirement and then retirement. That was the three-stage life. But that was at a time when people had a life expectancy of you know, 50, 60, maybe 65 years. Um, My generation, I'm 55. People from my generation are, we have a life expectancy somewhere around 79 to 85. That's average. But kids born today are all triple digit kids. Their life expectancy is naturally going to be 100. That has to do with sanitation, um, nutrition information, uh, technology, et cetera. So someone who's living longer and longer and longer can really not be expected to live a three-stage life because you'd have to work and work and work to make enough money to have a 30-year resting retirement period maybe. And most of us don't have the infrastructure for that. You know, um, Social Security, uh, 401K, some people are just, you know, we're just living hand to mouth. Anyway, I promise you, there's a, there's a connection with the book you're talking about and what's going on inside of me. That it's natural, perhaps, for somebody who's 55, like me, to start going, huh, huh, I'm, I'm a little restless. Now, hearing you speak about civilized to death, I actually find an excitement about this restlessness because this restlessness is an invitation for me to follow its beckoning. But the restlessness for me, uh, maybe because I'm 55, maybe because there's a, I'm not a three stage life, but maybe a five, six, seven stage life. This next stage is calling me into the trees. It's calling me into the, the, the rivers. It's calling me into rocks and quiet time. It's calling me into um, connecting with friends and family. So I, I, I found that the two books, the one I'm reading and the one you're describing, have just connected each other. Mm, well, that's good. I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I am. I'm too. I um, 
I mean, I know that we have gotten so far in a society that there would be no actually going back to a foraging state. I just think that there's something beautiful in that that's worth investigating and maybe we can incorporate it. And perhaps there's a moment where we could exist without the notion that it always has to get more progressive. You know, in these foraging states too, they didn't change very much, right? Because they were content kind of living the way they did. And in fact, there was a lot of stories, especially when we came over to um, colonize America, where the natives would get captured and they would always break free when given the option to go back to their tribes. And similarly, when a, a white man was captured by the natives, they would want to stay with the natives. They, they didn't want to go back. Hmm. And so in these tribes, they had a foundation that was connected to nature. They had a foundation that was also rooted in gratitude, which I thought was interesting. Like they came from the premise that the world provided what they needed, even if that meant, okay, maybe we won't know if we will be able to eat tomorrow. Eventually we'll find, a, you know, we'll find food, we'll keep going. But it was always a place of gratitude. And now we have more food than we'd ever want, you know, and it's always coming from a place of needing more. And I think ultimately that would be the biggest shift if we could come from a place of more gratitude and more connection while still utilizing the things that we have done with our minds and created in, you know, in an innovative way. If we have more reverence with this notion I think it could be beneficial for the, I mean, we need to change the world's going to, if we keep going like this, we're going to kill our planet. Right. So it's like, it's a fundamental shift that I think is kind of a necessary one. And I'd prefer it to be this shift made from each individual out than a government trying to create a coercive law to force people into some sort of way of being when it could be, this could be our foundation and everyone could express in their own unique way if we all took this as our first rule. Hmm. You know, you said uh, something like, uh, I, I don't know if we would get back to foraging, but there's something very interesting while you were speaking that I saw in my mind. Almost every on-ramp and freeway overpass in, in the area in which I live and in this immediate geography has tent cities under them. I've noticed an explosion of homelessness in the last uh, year and a half, maybe two years. Like it's, it's becoming such an, 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 a part of the, the, the landscape. And when you said something about not getting back to foraging, there seems to be more and more people who are foraging right now. Yeah. I think the difference would be that the culture itself, there wouldn't be such diversity between those that are living in that fashion and those that are living in like, another fashion. Like, like you and I? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, I'm still struggling with that part. It's, um, I mean, in these, in these foraging societies, they were small, right? But yeah. they were all very egalitarianism, egalitarian in the sense that 
each person had a valued role, but their role was dictated by what they yearned to do. So, you know, now people go out and fish and hunt as leisure fun activities, but that was somebody's job, right? Now people go to do pottery classes as their extra thing to, to do pottery. That was somebody's job and they're all equally valued. And a leader of the group wasn't, didn't come forth because he was macho or she was some sort of arrogant person. It was a chosen leader that kind of came by chance. Like the person didn't even really want to be a leader, right? It just sort of organically flows. So in this small group, you have this beautiful kind of seemingly opposite roles of each individual expressing their diverse individualness, but within the concept of a group being equal hmm. and rooted in gratitude and of course you didn't have material things because you're constantly on the move right so all of that wasn't existing there wasn't a barter system of who has more or less the group was one but when you're dealing with a country this big i wonder how that would look if it's possible um like i i want to say i want to give to everybody and have us all have at least the bare minimum. And I do see something wrong with the fact somebody has two yachts, five mansions, and then there's people living under the underpass in this country. Like, but what's the answer? I'm not sure. <laughs> except, except for maybe seeing each other more connected. Because maybe we're just not seeing value in certain things. But I don't know. That part still confused on. Hmm. You know? Yeah. That's a that's a big question that makes me go. Hmm. Yeah, it's a very big question. Hmm. But I am I'm very I mean there's so much that I love about our constitution and I I there's some things I actually love about the capitalist structure although I think that corporate greed and everything has kind of made it so it doesn't work and I don't know how you fix that but there is a sense that people want something different and there is a sense that there's something gone off the rocker. I worry that we'll be too rushed to form changes by destroying things that are existing that could be worth saving, especially without understanding what's come before and the base of it all, you know? But I do see room for change. I do see room. I just, I really feel like it's some change that has to come from the individual soul outward. I don't think it's a change that can happen from the government. Especially in the state when the government is intertwined with all the corporate interests. So if, if we want change, then we have to act accordingly, right? We have to stop buying certain things. We have to give certain places. We have to extend hands to certain things. We have to grow our own gardens. We have to plant trees. We have to thank the earth. We have to be that, right? Like, to me, that's where it's at. I don't, I don't see how it comes from Big Daddy. Hmm. That's yeah. my call, I guess. But, I like it. But I don't know. That's what's resonated toward with me. Do you remember what I said when we started? I said um, every sermon or any decent sermon, um, lecture, uh, self-help seminar, or book always ends with a call to action. And you literally just gave me a call to action. All right. Woohoo! We got I mean, there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it happens every time. That's the nature of life. It is. 
I'm, well, I'm excited for your new chapter. Me too. I have no idea what it's, I have no idea how it's unfolding, but it's very exciting. That's fun. Exciting is good. Makes you feel alive. Yeah, totally. Thank you. Give my best to your boy, your girl, and your husband. I'll do the same to my family too. From All you. right. I, I'm complete, Katie. How are you? I feel complete and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Katie. Have a lovely day. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, David.